And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. To magnify means to enlarge. Like I do with these reading glasses. They're simply magnifying glasses so that it takes something very small like the text of the Bible and it enlarges it so that I can see. Or like a microscope that takes something that cannot be seen with the natural eye and enlarges it so the natural eye can see it. Then there's the kind of enlargement that we do with planets in our solar system that are massive and large. And so we take a telescope and we try to make the planet look as large as it already is. So that's enlargement of a different kind. When God says the Lord will be magnified, He's not talking about magnifying glasses or a microscope to try to take God who's small and make Him look like He's big. He's talking about His weightiness, His massive reality, so that we can see it in such a way, try to see it as He truly is, so that the Lord would be exalted and magnified and enlarged in our eyes, according to the text, the eyes of Israel, the eyes of the Gentiles, and the eyes of others. And you remember in chapter 1 verse 11, we alluded to this last week, for from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord shall be great among you. You're a Gentile. And if you're a believer, God's aim is to make His name enlarged like a planet is enlarged through you seeing Him in such a way that He's enlarged in your eyes and He's enlarged in the eyes of others. So when I look at these five verses in chapter 1, as you remember, Malachi is speaking to Israel some 100 years after exile. The temple has been rebuilt. The people have been expecting the Messiah. And they look back to the early prophetic writings of the coming Messiah. And they're skeptical. They're discouraged. They're upset. At God. Because they think God is not following through as He should. When really God is going to expose the real problem is not God as we know But the problem is the sin of the people. So in this context, Malachi, God through Malachi, delivers six disputes. Last week we looked at the fourth dispute and part of the second dispute. And I suppose I'm sort of doing the backstroke this morning, going back to the first dispute, rather than starting there. I didn't plan to go here, but here we are, and so here's where we'll go. So here's how the dispute unfolds. The first one, which I would say lays the foundation for the entire book. In fact, I would go on record to say that when we understand this dispute and what God is saying, it will be the foundation of revival in a culture and in a church. This is the foundation text. When we see what God is saying, it will produce a revival if the Holy Spirit comes and empowers us to see what God is saying in this first dispute with Israel that lays the context for every other dispute In this letter of four chapters. Verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord. The oracle or means to lift and then to carry. Which is God's word being lifted and carried out through Malachi. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you saith the Lord. 
Yet you say, wherein hast thou loved us? The dispute. Now when God says, I've loved you, and he enters into a dispute, it's not the kind of back and forth dispute where each person goes back and forth to see who wins the argument. The aim of God's dispute with Israel in anticipation of their response, which he already knows, is to uncover in the response the sin itself. So in Israel's response to God's dispute, we find the problem with Israel. And beloved, you will find your problem, and I will find the root of my problem, of every sin that we commit. They were looking at God's love through a distorted lens. And that's what exposed in their response. Wherein have you loved us? Now if you turn the question into a statement, it reads like this. You have not loved us, and you do not love us. You can imagine... Israel waiting for God's response, and they have all their guns loaded, so to speak, actually entering into a dispute with God, and they're ready for all the accounts which they think God hasn't loved them, and they're going to demonstrate it. But God answers in a shocking way. How could Israel actually enter into a debate with God? What they should have said is, Lord, the question is, how have we loved you? That's the question you should ask yourself this morning. How is your love for God? Is it cold? Is it like an iceberg? Is it warm? Is it affectionate? Is it devoted? Is it resolved? Or is it like Israel? Jesus confronts the culture of the Jews in his day when the messenger of the covenant of Malachi 3 actually shows up and says the problem with Israel in his day, and this is the problem with Israel and Malachi, is that they're looking at God with a distorted lens. So Jesus says in Matthew 6.22, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore the eye be single, the whole body is full of light. But if the eye be evil... The whole body is full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now, the post-exile remnant, they're in the light. They have the light of the law, the light of the temple, the light of the sacrifices, the light of the priesthood, and the light of the prophets. They're in the know. And so was Israel when Jesus showed up. But Jesus says the problem that the light is in you, the eye that you're looking through is distorted. So that the light you see, the light that's there is really just darkness. How great is the darkness if in the light of religion we're looking through the lens of a distorted eye. And so when Israel looks at the love of God, rather than being amazed with it, they're looking through the distortion of of an evil eye. It's kind of like looking at yourself through an iPhone filter. Now there are two ways you can see that filter. One is that you can make yourself look really good. Nobody showed me that one. I mean you can, 
I can reduce the size of my nose. I can take off the gray. I can put on hair. And I can look, believe it or not, pretty sharp. Israel, when they look at God, they're looking through a lens that sees themselves as pretty good people. But there's another lens called the happy face lens. I've had some of my children put the phone in my face and I didn't know whether to laugh or to cry. I mean, it was hideous. My face was so distorted. Israel is looking at the love of God in a way that they see themselves as pretty good. And when they look at the love of God, they see a distorted picture. A diseased view, an evil eye that's diseased and unhealthy and cannot see its blurred vision. And so, this distortion is the filter, staying with an iPhone filter, is the filter called me-centered love. Now notice the answer again. How have you loved us? That's first person plural. First person singular. How have you loved me? It's all about me. When they look at God, all they can think about is me. Now I want to show you in every dispute briefly, that is the root problem with Israel. In chapter 1, God confronted Israel with another dispute and said, You're offering the sick, the blind, and the lame. Why were they offering that? Because they were me-centered. If you hold back the better sacrifices, you get more money at the market. They were in love with themselves and in love with money. Second dispute, me-centered. Third dispute, Malachi chapter 2. Why were they putting their wives away with a bill of divorcement? Because they had married the daughter of a strange God. Like in Nehemiah's day. In fact, Malachi comes on the scene right after Nehemiah. When they had started marrying the women of foreign countries. And they would put away their wives. Jesus dealt with this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. When he said, you have heard of old time that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looks upon a woman, the lust in his heart has committed adultery already. Now why did Jesus say that? Because like Malachi's day, the Jews had come up with easy ways to put away their wives. Why? Well, you can't have another woman you want if you've got this legal thing called adultery. So we'll come up with a plan to skirt adultery, and we think we'll legally put away our wives and get the woman we want. And Jesus says, here's the problem. You already committed adultery in the lust of your heart. See, the reason you put your wife away is a me-centered love. It's all about you and the gratification of your own sinful desires. Second dispute, third dispute, me-centered love. The dispute we saw last Sunday. Why were they accusing God of actually delighting in their enemies? Well, because they were so prosperous. And Israel wasn't. A me-centered love that says, God, I'm in it for what you can do for me. I'm in it for the prosperity. Dispute number four, why... Five, why were they robbing God in tithes and offerings? That's probably the most simple one. Because the less you give of your own money, or if you give no money, there's only one reason, beloved. 
You want all the money for a me-centered lifestyle to spend it on yourself. That's sin. That's idolatry. And that's what's happening in Israel. And the last and final dispute. Why was Israel saying it's vain to serve God? It's just a waste of time. We have kept your ordinances. We have walked mournfully. We have gone to church. We've offered the sacrifices. We've read the Bible. And we prayed the prayers. And we get no profit. Behold, we call the happy or the proud happy. They are set, and even God delivers them. Clearly, the reason they thought it was vain to serve God is because we get nothing out of the proposition. A me-centered religion who looks at the love of God as a man-centered kind of love rather than a God-centered love. Israel is like the child of a, 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 a child of a home that's a they, a child-centered home where the parents dote on the children and give them everything they want. And then when they don't get what they want or don't get it as they should or think that the love of parents is subpar, what do they say? You don't love me. Beloved, our only hope is that God's love is centered upon God alone first. If God's love were centered upon man, if we were at the center... If the earth came to the center of the solar system and the sun moved away, what would happen? Everything would fall. Because the strong gravitational pull of the sun, which keeps all the planets in orbit around itself, would be lost. Israel has a problem with a me-centered love. And things are falling apart, not because of the love of God, but because of the self-centered, self serving, me-centered love that looks at God and says, your love is subpar because what are you doing for me? Have you ever been the kind of person that says that about your marriage or your church or your pastor or your deacons or your members? What are you doing for me? As soon as you pose that question, even if it never rises to the level of God, if it's horizontal, rest assured you've turned to a me-centered love. It's all about you, or it's all about me. So Israel is looking through a distorted lens, a filter of a me-centered love. God knows that. God poses or enters the dispute to expose Israel so that God can confront them and bring them back to a God-centered love that the irony of it is what? It will be for their profit. It will be for their gain. It will be for their good. It will be for their enjoyment. It will be for everything that Israel wants, but Israel won't get because Israel is not seeing with eyes and saying, The Lord be magnified. So what we'll look at, and we'll just start today, is how God's love and His answer is designed to cause us to see God in a certain way. So God's answer is this. We'll look at three ways, but probably only one today, maybe two. Here's God's answer. And I'll read again. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? How have you loved me? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? 
saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob and hated Esau. That is not the answer we were expecting, was it? If a child in a child-centered home says, Mom and Dad, you don't love me. What do the parents do? I put a roof over your head. I give you clothing. I give you food. I've done this. I take you to all these activities. I'm trying to educate you. What do you mean? God doesn't list a single thing He's done for Israel. And beloved, He could have dumped on them. From the beginning of Exodus, He could have told them of the action of His love that they remembered, that they had forgotten, and that they don't even know about. Things He could have told them they don't even know. But He doesn't. And so the first thing that God is going to tell us about His love is God's love is fearful. God's love is fearful. God's aim in saying that was for them to tremble. And that's the problem with American Christianity, isn't it? We mentioned last week and we're seeing throughout this book, the problem is the fear of God. A revival can break out. When the people return to a fear of the Lord, an appropriate fear of God, which by and large is not found in our culture today. So we'll look at a couple of passages that will express God's aim to be feared and how that produces love to Him. When we fear God then we see His love and we actually love Him. Without the fear of God, there's no love for God. So if Israel's questioning the love of God, we don't see how you love us, they don't fear God. And Malachi mentions this for four times. Malachi 1.6, Malachi 2.5, Malachi 3.5, and Malachi 4.2. All four passages, we'll look at two of them, speak of the fear of God. It's the foundation. It, it, is, it is the platform. It's, it's the origin by which we will be able to see and magnify the love of God when we fear Him in a right way. Malachi 1.6 A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I be a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord? To you, O priest, that despise my name. So the point of the question is what? You don't honor me and you don't fear me. That's why you can't see my love. There's no fear before your eyes. And the word honor and the word fear bring two nuances in these words. And then we'll try to illustrate that. Over the years I've tried to illustrate every time we come to the fear of the Lord some new illustration that tries to capture the two nuances found in what it means to honor God and what it means to fear God. The first one is he's a heavyweight. He's massive. Holy men of God, when they came into the presence of the heavy weightiness of God, they just they fell and they were eating dust. Moses fell and worshipped, Exodus 34. Daniel had no strength in him, fell down. Isaiah, he was undone when he saw the holiness of God. John the Apostle, Revelation, he was a dead man. 
Not literally, but he just, like he had no skeletal structure, just collapsed. Because he came into the presence of a heavyweight. Massive. But the second nuance is to be awestruck, awe-inspiring. It's like standing at the Niagara Falls. I haven't been there, but I can sort of experience it in my mind. And you just smile and sort of laugh at the weightiness. So there's weight, there's mass, but you, you just take a breath and laugh and you smile. Both of those ideas are to be experienced in the fear of God. And Israel doesn't experience either one. So rather than laughing at God, laughing with God, laughing with joy, you know what they're doing? They're yawning. You despise my name. You're bored with the heavy weightiness of God. You're yawning in the presence of God. I wonder if that happens here. I don't mean because you're sleepy and, you know, the oxygen thing to the brain and you yawn. So if you need to yawn, go ahead. I'm not judging you. It was a, an expression of their boredom. Of God. Why? Because rather than fearing God, they were me-centered. So God was just God, you know, yawning. And they weren't trembling in the presence of God because God had become sort of commonplace. So familiar. So common. Just come in here on Sunday and worship Him, be gone. It's just... They didn't fear God. They didn't tremble at His weightiness, therefore they didn't have any joy of being awestruck by that weightiness. When in fact their joy was what? The sacrifices they kept for themselves, the money, the women that they got from the other countries, and all the things we see in the disputes. What Israel desperately needed was the mouth to drop open with a fear of God that restored them to the love of God. So let's look at Malachi 2. This is one place we'll look at where this is mentioned. And then if we have time, we'll look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, where God speaks there. And He says, through Moses, God requires that you fear Him and love Him. Fear, love. And then He speaks about His divine choice, which demonstrates His love. See? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? I loved one and hated the other. To produce fear. The right kind. Malachi chapter 2 verse 1. And now, O ye priests... He speaks to the priests first in chapter 1 and chapter 2 because it started with the priests, it went to the prophets, then it went to the people. So he's going to get to the people, but it started with the priesthood. O ye priests, this word is for you, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already. Now why are things not going well in Israel? He's cursed them already. Why? They didn't put it, fix it in their hearts to magnify God's glory, to give Him glory. And He says, the reason He did this, because you do not lay it to heart. Verse 3, Behold, I will corrupt your seed, your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, even the dung of your solemn feast, and one shall take you away with it. In the Levitical sacrifices that the Levites performed, the dung and the intestines were taken out and burned away from the camp. God says, I'm going to take you out of the camp and spread dung in your faces. That wouldn't be a good experience, would it? You're going to be like the dung that's burned outside the camp. You're going to be taken away. 
Verse 4, And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Now this is what God is doing through Malachi. He's charging the priests with not laying it to heart in their role as priest. Not fixing it, not placing it, not setting God's glory at the center of their hearts because they place the love of other things there. We've already demonstrated. See? You can't serve God and money. You can't. They were serving money. And God was out of the heart. If you do not put it in your hearts to give me glory, this will be the result. And now he's going to contrast their priesthood with the original Levitical priesthood that God established with Levi, the son of Aaron, which continued through the day of Malachi because they were descendants of Levi. So here's the contrast. Here's the covenant with Levi, in verse 5, My covenant was with him, Levi, of life and peace. I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. Now you priests, you don't lay it to heart. You don't fear me. That's your problem. Levi feared me. In fact, he was afraid of my name. Now the covenant he established doesn't mean because they feared him. It was a covenant established on fear. They were to fear him And so they did. Now, the following verses, God is going to unpack for us what it means seeing Him as a heavyweight and laughter of joy in the covenant of Levi. That reminds me, as the next illustration that I said I would use to express this before we continue in chapter 2, is years ago in the city I grew up in, the city would commemorate the founding of the city with a a day called Pearl Day. That's where I was from. And I think I was junior high, maybe. And they would have these activities in, in the public park. And strangely enough, they would have boxing. Anybody could sign up for boxing. So on that day, I remember sitting at ringside. I, I wasn't going to do the boxing. And they would have the various weight categories. Well, this nearby town, this boxing club, got word of it and they entered it without anybody knowing. So we saw these guys showing up that looked like they really knew how to box. These weren't amateurs. Well, they were amateurs, but they were much better than anybody that would get into that ring. So boxing match after boxing match, lightweight, featherweight, middleweight, they kept winning until heavyweight time. I will never forget the experience I had when the guy I knew from my high school, stepped in the ring. Now, he was a heavyweight. He was heavy, but he wasn't that kind of heavyweight. The guy that stepped in the ring was massive. In fact, I had never seen anybody that big in my life. Now, today with steroids and all this weightlifting, you probably see him all the time. Not in my day. You saw him on TV maybe, but this guy was massive. And when he bounced around shadow boxing, it's as if I felt the earth shake Every time his foot hit the mat. I had two profound experiences. The first one was I started shaking. I was shaking. I thought, this is not good. I looked for an ambulance. I looked for paramedics. I looked for an authority to somebody shout, don't let this happen. One blow to the kisser and that guy is down. Maybe just the wind of his swing would have knocked him right out. He was massive. I was trembling with fear. You know what my other experience was? I started laughing. You know why I laughed? Because I wasn't in the ring, beloved. 
I was shaking. I was laughing. I was shaking. I was laughing. That is a right experience of the fear of God. You're shaking, but you're smiling because in some way you're safe. You're safe. Now that's what we're about to see with the covenant God established with Levi. Levi in some way was trembling in the presence of God, but he was laughing because he was safe. Those two things will produce a revival because when that happens we see God at the center and God is loved more like He should be. He's enlarged and man is put down where he should be on his face in a good way. So let's look at this covenant in verse 6. Here it is. The law of truth was in his mouth and iniquity was not found in his lips. Here is the fear of the Lord. This is how Levi trembled before the Lord. Now what does that mean? How is it possible? When James and James chapter 3 say, if we offend in any way, if we haven't offended or sinned in any other way, it's with our lips. And yet... Levi's fear of God, his awe in the presence of God was such that there was no iniquity found in his lips. What does that mean? It means in the last part of the verse, he did turn many away from iniquity. In other words, when iniquity was on his lips, it didn't stay there. He turned from it. And he helped others turn from it. Do you know why? Because Proverbs 8.13 says this, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I want to ask you, can you imagine the intensity and the passion of God's hatred? There's no way to quantify it. There's no way to measure the intensity for which God hates evil. If you fear God and there's evil on your lips, and you hate it like God hates it, now you fear God. And you want to spit it out. You want to get rid of it. You don't love it like a sweet morsel on your tongue. And just keep throwing iniquity around with your lips. And beloved, we know we can say some pretty bad things to the people we love. Don't we? We can say things we wish we had never said. But is that an enjoyment to you? Or is it a grief to you? Proverbs 6.16 These six things does the Lord hate. Yea, seven things are an abomination. A proud look. Now, that doesn't mean Levi never struggled with a proud look. What it means is when he did, he hated it and he repented of it because he trembled in the weightiness of God. Because God hates evil and God is against evil. And therefore, the fear wherewith Levi feared God was that he hated evil. Didn't mean he didn't do it. A proud look, a lying tongue. You ever lied? Do you love lying? Is it easy for you? Do you do it regularly? Is it found on your lips? Is it nothing for you? Then you don't fear God. You know what that means? You love yourself. You protect yourself. You advance yourself. You push yourself forward. And you'll lie to do it. You're just a self-loving person. And I am too. If lying is just the routine of the day. But to fear God means I hate it when I lie. I don't want to lie. And I'm turning away from lying. Levi was turning others from iniquity, which means Levi was turning from iniquity. doesn't mean God never saw any sin in his life. He was turning from it. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, 
A heart that deviseth mischievous things in their imaginations. Feet that are running swiftly into mischief. And those that sow discord among the brethren. Boy, we need to remember that. God hates it when discord and disunity is just sown among the brothers and sisters. He hates it with a passion. So if we fear God, we hate it too. We don't want to be a part of that. And we, we are. We repent of it. See? So, the heavy weightiness of God that caused Levi to tremble is that when he sinned, he, he regarded it as something God hated, and he hated, so he wanted to turn from it. And he wanted others to turn from it as well. That, that's, the, that's the heavyweight boxer side of the guy in the ring, and I'm trembling. Now here's the laughter side. Verse 7. Because, here's sort of the foundation of verse 6. Truth was in his mouth. Iniquity was not found in his lips. He's turning himself and others away from iniquity. Because the priest's lips, that's where iniquity is being turned away from. Because it comes from a certain kind of heart. Because the priest's lips, I'm in Malachi 2.7, should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed out of the way. Out of what way? Out of the way of fear. I have loved you, saith the Lord. How have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? What's God doing? Restoring the fear and the honor to his name that they had departed from. Priests first, prophets, then the people. What is it about seven that would suggest to us the joy and the laughter that's coupled with seeing God as a heavyweight? It's in the phrase, keep knowledge. Keep knowledge. The word keep means to retain it, to observe it, to store it up, to treasure it up like you would food in a pantry. Just stockpile food in a pantry. So let me, let me give you some ways that the priests were to stockpile knowledge. And then the last one we'll pinpoint as the laughter and joy of what this means. First, you just have to know the subject, right? If you're going to retain knowledge and people are going to seek knowledge at your mouth, you've got to know the subject. That's true of the ministry today, isn't it? need to understand the subject. Paul told Timothy, Consider what I say, and the Lord give you understanding in all things. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman, that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, the truth about God. So, the subject matter has got to be known as much as possible. If you're a teacher, you understand that. Like the days when I used to teach at a local Christian school, the children of NASA people, And I was teaching astrology, of all things. And they were like in the seventh grade. And I thought I was going to wing it. Until they started saying, well, Dad said, and Mom said, okay. I've got to know something about this subject. And so I I started to keep knowledge then. It It was going to be a good thing for me. That's one way, but we have to take it a step further. A teacher, a priest, doesn't just keep it. They have to communicate knowledge, right? That's a higher level of keeping knowledge. You may know everything, but it, if it just doesn't come out, then the priest can't keep knowledge. That, that's a struggle in terms of teaching, isn't it? You, you've got this understanding of what the subject is, 
And you, you, you think you've got the understanding like a New Testament uh, preacher today, and you've worked it over, but how am I going to say this to the people? Sometimes you say it, and it just makes no sense. So Paul told Timothy, I charge you in the sight of God, And the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing, preach the Word. So there's not just a keeping of knowledge and knowing the subject, but there's the proclamation of the subject in preaching the Word, in rebuking and exhorting and doing the ministry and preaching as Paul told Timothy. That's another level of keeping knowledge. But the third level is... Without this, the other two are just nothing. You just know something, and you're just a great communicator. I mean, there are false prophets that are outstanding communicators. They were in Paul's day. In fact, Paul said they looked better than him, and they were great communicators. They were superb at expressing the subject, but they lacked one thing. The priest should keep knowledge by delighting in the person he's talking about. Or it means nothing. It's just a bunch of words. What do we see in the fear of Levi that would point us to the fact that Levi delighted. He trembled in the presence of God as a heavyweight, but he had laughter and joy in the presence of God. It's back in verse 6. The law of truth was in his mouth and iniquity was not found in his lips. Why? He walked with me, saith the Lord. He walked with God. What is that supposed to be like, to walk with God? Awestruck. Laughter of joy. He walked with me in peace and equity. Shalom. Which means what? Welfare. Health. Most importantly, contentment the fear wherewith Levi feared God meant he was satisfied with God when Israel says how do you love us they're saying you don't satisfy us you don't give us any joy because you don't give us any possessions and money and the things everybody else has where we would find our joy Which is indicative of a large problem in the soul, isn't it? So when God says, my name will be great among the Gentiles. And He says, where is my honor? Where is my fear? He means, where is the delight in the God of the Bible that we experience magnifies God and is for our good? Beloved, when God is God-centered and He starts with God, it's always going to be to your profit. And the profit of your soul. The real profit. The real gain. The real contentment of a soul contentment. And not a physical body contentment. Which will depart you in the grave. It will be gone forever. Whatever joys you experience in this life. Will be gone forever. When your physical body is laid in the grave. But the soul lives forever with God. And He reunites the body and soul. To be with Him forever. So the fear of Levi is a heavy-weighted looking at God, at what God hates, and wanting to turn from it. And the power of turning from iniquity is the delight you have in God. How could Levi turn others from iniquity when they were in love with iniquity? By superior power of God's love and contentment that's found in Christ Jesus. 
That's why David said, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Well, that's a bore, isn't it? No, because in the law he finds God, the God that he loves. And so he's like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf does not wither, and whatever he does advances God's kingdom or prospers. But the ungodly, Israel, are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind driveth away. That's a picture that God gives us expressing someone who's moving about frantically, finding, seeking, looking for some measure of happiness, and they cannot find it. Is that you, beloved? Can you not see it? Can you not see yourself searching, looking, being blown away with every new wind of doctrine because you're drastically, desperately looking for some place to find joy? And you'll never find it until you land on Christ. Which is the next thing I want to point to. There's a better priesthood here than Levi. Levi was a sinner, and yet he feared God. But there's the messenger of the covenant. That Hebrews 5 says he feared God. He feared God. Jesus Christ feared God. That means he stood in the presence of God as a heavyweight. He turned from iniquity, which means he never did it. It was never found on his lips. It never came out of his mouth. And he loved the laughter of joy in God. So when God, through the writer of Hebrews, expresses this, what does he say? Because thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Isn't that what we're talking about in the fear of Levi? He loved God with a righteous love, and he hated anything that opposed God. And he was perfect and sinless. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the joy of gladness above all your fellows. And beloved, you have been anointed in him. As a believer, you find you are anointed, you are resurrected, you are made whole in the messenger of the covenant. Because he feared God in a way that you and I could never fear him. He loved righteousness in a way that you and I could never love righteousness as mere men. And he hated iniquity with a perfect hatred as God because he is God. As Hebrews 1 says, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And so to fear God is not looking at yourself and saying, what can I do to fear? What can I do to tremble? What can I do to love God? It's looking at Christ, the messenger of the covenant. And finding in him, he is the one that rises with healing in his wings. Malachi 4.2 But unto you that fear my name. There it is. Israel doesn't fear God. How is that expressed? How have you loved me? What does God say? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? You need to tremble with delight. The only thing that separated Esau from Jacob was the divine prerogative and the choice of God. Israel, you need to tremble because you are the namesake of Jacob. That's your origin. See, God goes all the way back to the origin of Israel. He goes back to the origin of Edom. The Edomites are descendants of Esau. Why does He do that? 
I could have just as easily chosen Esau and his descendants and been absolutely righteous in my choice. But I didn't. Why not? Because I didn't. I mean, but why not? Because I didn't. Because of the sovereign will of God and the good pleasure whereby He purposed it in Himself. We should tremble with delight. Only thing that separated you from being an Esau. So if you fear His name, which means you tremble, and there's the laughter of spiritual joy. What does He say? Unto you shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings. Son is capitalized, but it's S-U-N. And righteousness tells us it's pointing to the S-O-N, Jesus Christ, because He's like a Son in warmth and heat and joy and all that He is. And He's our righteousness. So when the Son of Righteousness arises, there's healing in His wings and under His wings. That's where we experience the fear of the Lord. How? Under His wings, there's trembling and there's laughter. First, there's trembling because when you peer through the wings of His righteousness, you see the wrath of God there. You see it in the Bible. You see the judgment of God coming. You see the wrath of God coming and you tremble with joy. Why? Because you're under the wings, beloved. You're, you're protected. It's safe there. See, you're, you're not in the ring with the massive heavyweight. You're standing and, and you're laughing and you're trembling because you're safe. Those that make refuge under His wings or that fear Him and see Him in that way, there's protection, there's trembling, but there's laughter and joy because God has rescued us from His own wrath and He's given us His Son's righteousness, the Holy Spirit, the graces of the Spirit. He's given us all things for life and godliness that we may fear Him and experience God in this way. So we tremble when we look out of the wings and see God's wrath, but we delight in that it's been satisfied, and here's the experience of delight. You shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Grow means spring, leap up. Now, I'm no farmer, but talked to some and read enough to know that when a cow gives birth in a stall, if they, they get them to the stall, and they're there for a few days. When the cow leaves the stall, they just kind of meander out. Maybe they trot. When a calf does, when a calf is loosed into a large field for the first time, the wonder of it. He skips, he springs, and he leaps for joy. That's the imagery that God is giving. So if you fear Him, you come under His wings, and you trust Him, and when you look at the massive heavyweight of God's holiness and His wrath, it's satisfied. And you tremble at it, but you're skipping and leaping and jumping under the wings. Why? Because the Son of Righteousness has arisen with healing in His wings. And He will arise again. He arose to bring that healing. And one day, He will arise like the Son of Righteousness, like the sun coming up over the horizon. And He will bring ultimate healing. Completely, totally, and finally. For whom? For those that fear Him. Those that don't fear Him, He's going to come in judgment. Malachi 3, 5. But those that fear Him, they love Him, they delight, they tremble, and all those things coming together. Christ is like 
the sun in the solar system. He keeps our orbit where it should be. His, the gravitational pull of His supremacy and His glory and His might and His righteousness and His love keeps us. What happens when you put yourself at the center with a me-centered love? Everything in your life starts to crash. Sooner or later, it begins to crash. May God bless us with a kind of revival in our hearts, whether it starts anywhere else and in our souls, that we would tremble and rejoice and experience God in a kind of fear that doesn't yawn in the presence of God, that wouldn't rather be somewhere else on the Lord's day because there's something better going on than in the house of God because our God is a sun and a shield. He will give grace and glory and no good thing will He withhold to them that walk uprightly. And so the psalmist says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Or, as the songwriter wrote, better is one day in thy house than a thousand elsewhere. That's based on Psalm 84. Is that true of us? I can say that all day. Is it better here in the house of God under the Word of God than a thousand days anywhere else on the planet? If it's not, we should be honest. And then we should say, Lord, increase my fear. Increase my fear of Your name. And expect Him to hear the prayer of the upright. Let's pray.